Good morning, church. Uh, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Titus this morning. Um, so you go ahead, if you want to go ahead and get, uh, get settled there early, Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Um, but before we do, I want to, uh, to share a couple stories with you uh, to set uh, the tone. And uh, <clears throat> some of you guys know this about me, some of you uh, may or may not. Um, I'm definitely a sports guy. And um, I played sports throughout high school, okay? I played basketball for four years, baseball for all four years, and even soccer for three years, which is not my favorite because it involves a lot of running, and that's... If you can't tell, I don't look like I run a lot, okay? So um, that was my least favorite of the three. But uh, I played all three of those um, for the bulk of, of high school, and um, my senior year in particular was rather interesting when it came to sports. Um, our baseball team, I want to tell two opposite end of the spectrum stories. Uh, our, our baseball team was probably one of the most talented that our school had had in years. And uh, we had a really good group of seniors on that team, um, besides me, okay, uh, besides me. We had a really good group of seniors. And uh, we were probably a team that people looked at uh, to win our state tournament. So uh, each year, the tournament we participated, participated in had eight teams, okay? Um, and we came in as one of the higher seeds. And uh, we uh, got there, and let's just say that uh, our guys didn't have their priorities straight, all right? Uh, some of our guys were, uh, uh, let's just say, uh, not putting in the time and effort they needed to. And so we come in as a high seed uh, out of a group of eight, and we come in seventh place out of eight. And a season when we probably should have ended up at least in the top two to some degree. And, uh, and I remember talking with our coach after the season, and we made some comments about that. It was like, we, we had the ability to do better, but we didn't do things together as a team well. And not only that, we had people that's priorities were out of whack. Contrast that with basketball season, all right? We go uh, to our tournament, once again, eight teams, and we come in as the seven seed. Nobody expects much from us. We hadn't had a great year. Nobody expected a lot. And so we go into our first game, we play amazing, we win the first game. We go to play our second game. Our second game is against uh, the number two seed, all right? And they're a team that was incredibly good, incredibly athletic, okay? And um, let's just say that they knew it. They, they were quite arrogant and quite prideful. As a matter of fact, we lined up at the free throw line while one of their guys was shooting a free throw, and he looked at us on the free throw line and told us, you guys don't deserve to be on the court with us. We beat them by double digits. Um, and then we make it, so we make it all the way to the championship game. We lose the championship game. But, but we had this, under, this team that wasn't expected to do a whole lot that finished towards the top. And the reason being was because of the way that we worked together. We had spent all that time during the course of the season building that rapport with one another figuring out what combinations worked, figuring out who had what role. And by the time we finally got there, we gelled and came together. And for a team that was considered to not do, wasn't looked at as a team that should have done well, I think we were successful, at least in the eyes of how you finish, right? But the reason for that was because of the teamwork 
that we had, was the way that we worked with one another, was the way that everybody embraced their role. My role that season was uh, to get injured in the middle of the year. That was my role. Um, Literally my ankle rolling in the middle of the season. And my first game back was the first game at, at our state tournament. And uh, the whole season, whenever I did play, I was coming off the bench some games and then starting some games. We had a guy that was 6'6 that would start in place. We would alternate sometimes. Understandably so. He was quite tall. Um, And yet, there were two very different experiences that I had among those two teams. And the determining factor was our teamwork. It was the way that we worked together with one another. And so, in our scripture today, Paul writes about discipleship. And so, Uh, you won't see the word discipleship in the passage, but as you read about it, it becomes abundantly clear that that's what he's talking about, all right? And what he does, um, just uh, as we get started here, a disciple uh, is basically just a follower, and so uh, the goal of discipleship in the biblical sense is to make followers of Jesus. And so what Paul writes about is discipleship and how it takes everyone to be successful, And so uh, the title this morning is that discipleship is a team sport. It involves everybody. We've all got a place. We've all got a role. And so we're in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to read the first eight verses. And so I want to read that with you now. So uh, if you've got your Bible, so hopefully you're already there. Uh, I'm reading out of the CSB, and that's the one that will be up on the screen as well. Uh, It says, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in the faith, love and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They're to teach what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure workers at home, kind and in submission to their husbands, so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be so sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you this morning for your word. Um, God, I pray that your word is what's heard. God, that uh, you do things that only you can do. You reach hearts in ways only you can. And God, that you uh, just reveal yourself to us. God, be present in our midst. Um, use my words, God, to speak your truth. And um, God, I pray that that's, that's what's heard in this place today. In your name I pray. Amen. And so let me offer, as I try to in most situations, a little bit of a background for the book of Titus, Okay. So Titus is known as a pastoral epistle, and so Paul writes 1 and 2 Timothy, he writes Titus. So he writes three of them, and, uh, and so uh, it was written roughly around 65 AD, so 30 to 35 years after Jesus ascended. So even the seasoned believers at this church could have only believed in Jesus for 30 or so years, all right? So consider the timing there. The seasoned believers at most they, they could have believed in, in the God of the Old Testament and throughout all of those, but in, in the person of Jesus himself had only been gone for th- about 30 years, 30 to 35 years. And so you've got uh, this, this group of believers um, that uh, are seasoned believers. And so uh, Paul writes this book to a young pastor uh, named Titus. And Titus was uh, a pastor over a group of house churches in Crete. 
Uh, Crete was proverbial in the ancient uh, world for immorality. It was a place full of sin. It was a place full of false teaching. In fact, we see uh, in Titus chapter 1, if we go back a chapter, uh, one of Crete's own prophets said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And you know what Paul says in the very next verse? It's true. That's what he says. Paul's like, their own people say this, and I, I, it, I, by my observation, it, they're right. That, that's exactly how the people here are. And so uh, he, he, he speaks to that. He speaks about some of those issues and some of those sin problems in chapter 1. And so Paul goes and he plants these house churches in Crete, uh, which by all accounts was a terrible place, uh, a place void of truth in the gospel and a place with very little desire to leave their sinful ways behind. For us, I'd say we also live in a culture and a society that is being shaped more by the secular culture than by the sacred scriptures. You see, the passage today holds all the more importance for that reason. And so Paul leaves Titus in Crete to take care of the churches. And in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he says, I'm leaving you here uh, to finish uh, some unfinished business, to finish the work that, wasn't, that was, wasn't done yet, and to put in place a church government structure of elders and to teach sound doctrine in a place completely void of it. So Titus had a tough job. As a matter of fact, Titus comes in as an uncircumcised Gentile uh, coming to a place that um, the majority of the false teachers were Jewish Christians. So you've got those boundaries in place, those walls in place. And so in order to help the churches combat the false teaching that chapter 1 refers to, he creates the qualifications of elders, and so he starts to talk to him about making sure that all of these house churches are under eldership, that there are leaders present in those churches and teachers. And so he, he's to appoint elders worthy of that position, and, and I would suggest that having good leadership uh, would be a big deal for churches that wish to honor God with the truth of his word. And then we get to our passage in chapter 2. And so after Paul addresses the appointment of elders, uh, he starts to speak of the false teaching throughout the rest of chapter 1, and we get to chapter 2, and he dives into the role of the others in the church. And so while this word discipleship doesn't appear, I think as we read, you can see the implications and that that's exactly what it's referring to. And so we're going to dive into this this morning And uh, I want to hit on a couple of different layers of discipleship. And I say layers because there's different groups of people that have different tasks, okay? And so the first group, the first layer that it offers up is elders or pastors. Uh, The term elder used here is is interchangeable with the word overseer. Throughout the New Testament, you'll see the terms elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd, all referring to the same office uh, throughout the New Testament. And so Uh, In verse 1, you notice he's still talking to Titus, who is the elder pastor of these churches. And so, you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And so, the elder's responsibility is to teach sound doctrine. And see, they teach the whole congregation. It's, It's scenarios and situations like the one that we're in right now, where you have someone teaching the Word of God. The person that's here should be teaching the sound doctrine to the entire congregation. Now, doctrine in and of itself is uh, inst- it's instruction, it's teaching, it's a set of beliefs that are accepted as authoritative. And so the doctrine that you're taught 
and uh, by whatever elder or pastor happens to be in front of you, uh, is accepted as authoritative by the word of God. That's the goal. All right, that's the goal. And so Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples, to baptize, to teach them all uh, that he has commanded. And so what's interesting is that an aspect of discipleship involves teaching others. So I don't know if you've ever considered this before, uh, but when you hear sound doctrine preached in a service on a Sunday morning, you are actively being discipled. It's a key element of discipleship. I encourage you to consider it as such. Here's what sound doctrine does, all right? Sound doctrine teaches the entirety of Scripture, not just the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament points to the New Testament, and all of Scripture is a beautiful story of continuity about God's love for his people and a story of redemption and restoration between God and man. We can't do just part of it. We can't pick and choose which scriptures to teach. That's not having an elder that teaches sound doctrine. It's got to be the entirety of scripture. Sound doctrine teaches the sufficiency of the gospel, that the message of Jesus, that the message of his coming to take the price for your sin and my sin on the cross, not just so we can have eternal life, but so we can have a relationship with him that starts at that moment that you accept it. This message of sufficiency of the gospel, that it's not the gospel plus something else equals salvation. It's the gospel is equals salvation. It's not anything else added to it. And then sound doctrine teaches the entirety of God's character. We live in a culture where uh, people like to pick and choose which elements of God's character they want to go by and want to follow. Well, God is love, so I can do whatever I want, right? Because uh, God's not going to, to discipline me in any way for what I'm doing because he's love and he forgives. Yeah, well, you're leaving out elements of God's character that are vitally important to understanding all of Scripture. And so someone that teaches sound doctrine is going to teach the entirety of God's character and not pick and choose. What we also see here is that the teaching of sound doctrine relates to sound relationships in the church. The things that follow deal with intergenerational relationships within the church. I don't know how many of you have intergenerational relationships within the church, but this whole passage talks about it. In order for us to have unity across the generations, there needs to be sound doctrine modeled and taught in the church, but by all members, which is something we'll get to in a few minutes. In verses 7 and 8, um, while they're potentially geared towards the younger men, it also applies to Titus that he's to teach sound doctrine in his preaching, but also he's to be a model of good works because good doctrine and a good life go together. And so a good elder, a good pastor, is going to be an example to the flock in their teaching, in their conduct, and in their speech. And their preaching is going to be done for the purpose of honoring God and advancing his kingdom not any sort of other worldly kingdom. Another element of uh, discipleship from an elder is to equip the saints. And we see that in two passages specifically, one in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry is the role of, of an elder. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this is a familiar passage. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
There's that word equipped again. And so when an elder faithfully teaches Scripture, we're equipping the folks for every good work. And so that's one layer of discipleship that's brought forth. Just starting in verse 1 uh, is the, 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 the elder layer. And then we get to another layer that is a little more hidden in here, uh, but I want to bring it to our attention. And that's uh, the layer of parents. All right? Uh, and so in, uh, in uh, verse... Let me make sure I get the right one, all right? In verse 4, uh, it says that uh, the older... Women are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. And so there's an element in here of, of parenting, discipleship. You see, to love their children here doesn't mean just a natural affection, because as we all know, those of us that have kids, you don't always feel as though you love your children, because they're not always the most lovable. All right? If it's, if it's based on a feeling, it's going to change, Right? And so it's not speaking specifically of some sort of uh, mushy feeling or natural affection, but a spiritual love, a love that springs from a sanctified heart, not a love that indulges our children in evil, not one that neglects correction, but a Christian love that shows itself in how uh, children are educated and how they, you form their life and their manners in Christ. And so it says the older women are commanded to teach the younger women to love their children. That said, there's an element of taking care of their souls as well as their bodies that's present in that command and in that speech. Um, but we have a great example of this in 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul commends uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother for basically living a life of faith that drew Timothy to live a life of faith. And so we see this beautiful example. His father is never mentioned, all right? And so this may be a situation where maybe he didn't have one. We're not sure. It's not mentioned. But it does specifically mention his mother and grandmother for living a life of faith that Timothy has followed. And so while this passage speaks of mothers loving on their children, I want to make sure that we recognize that throughout this passage on several occasions, it uses phrases like, in the same way. In the same way. It uses things like that. And so in other words... Yes, the mother is to love her children, but that doesn't mean that the father is not to love his children. That command also goes there. And so we see plenty of times in Scripture God speaks of parents discipling their children together. As Ephesians 5, 23 reminds us that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And so as Scripture speaks to it on several occasions, the father is the head of the household. So it's also his responsibility to be training up and teaching his children, to disciple them. It's the father's responsibility to do like Joshua did in the Old Testament, to lead a household that serves the Lord. And the mother, who in most cases spends more time with the children, is responsible for discipling them as well. In Ephesians 6, verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I love that it uses the word instead, uh, implying that there are two conflicting things that you would be doing there. Proverbs chapter 1, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't re neglect, uh, reject your mother's teaching, for they will be a garland of grace on your head and a chain around your neck. If sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. And one of my favorite passages, and one that I've hit on a ton 
uh, just in my own life over the last several months is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's a fantastic passage, y'all. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, if you, uh, I don't have it on the screen, so feel free to jot that note down to look at it in a little bit. But Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, it says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and, and when you rise. You'll bind them as a sign on your hand. They'll be as frontlets between your eyes, and you will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The words that were commanded will be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. And so the idea presented in Deuteronomy 6 is you should always be teaching your children about God and about his word. Always. When you sit down, when you go for a walk, when you're sitting at the dinner table, doesn't matter the situation, it's constant. We should be teaching our children. And so it mentions, I said that one was a little more vague in the passage itself, um, and yet it's still uh, definitely a layer of discipleship that's present. And so we've got elders that are responsible for sound doctrine and equipping the saints, and we've got parents that are responsible for teaching the word of God to their children and this is the one that we're going to camp out on for a little while. We get to the third one uh, that is individual believers in verses 2 through 8. Every person fits into one of these four categories that we're going to talk about if they've given their life to Jesus. Which means that every person that's given their life to Jesus has a role in this. None of us are exempt I hope y'all are catching that. There's also no covenant here that says uh, if you're too young or if you're too old, then you don't have to do these things. I don't read that anywhere in here. There's not a stopping point. It's continuous as long as we're here. And so the first group that it hits uh, is the older men in verse 2. And so older men disciple the younger men. See, Paul contrasts these older men with the false teachers. See, these false teachers we read about in chapter 1, verse 10 through 16, it says that they were insubordinate, they were mouthy, they were deceptive, they were liars, they were lazy, they were motivated by money. They heeded the words of man and of popular culture more than the words of God. It's quite the list. And so he contra contrasts that with what he commands the older men to be and to do. See, older men are to disciple in their character and in their conduct. And let me just say, as I address these, that these things run together. They're closely connected because your character uh, impacts and determines your conduct. And so the passage speaks to both. So older men, disciple younger men by their character and by your conduct. They're to be sober-minded is what it says in the passage. So they're to be wise in their decision-making. They're to be dignified or worthy of respect. Older men, we got to think about whether or not the way we live is worthy of respect. That may take a minute. It says that he's worthy of honor and respect, particularly by younger men, because of the purity and integrity of his life. Older men, you're called to be self-controlled. There's an element of, and, and one of the things that you'll see is that there's an element of self-control that's present in all four groups. And so it's a theme here, due in part to the fact that the people that are among them in Crete don't show any self-control whatsoever. And so what we see here is he mentions self-control. And I think it's important to mention that 
People don't naturally exhibit self-control. It's not our natural response. There's a reason why it is a fruit of the Spirit. It's because we need the Spirit to work in us to give us self-control. So stay in the Word. Draw close to God. Seek after that, that, that character of being self-controlled. It says they're to teach. And in some cases that means by their gifts, but in all cases they're to teach by their conduct and their character. It says to be sound in the faith. And so the older men, we're called to be confident in our relationship with Jesus, in his work on the cross. We're called to be sound in our faith, sincere and steadfast, adhering to the truth of the gospel, not easily swayed to go and follow something else. We have to be firm on our foundation, which is Jesus. It says to be loving. And the love that's mentioned uh, in here is in a, in a general sense. And so we're called to love God supremely, love fellow believers genuinely, and love lost humanity fervently. We're called to love older men. Set the example in your conduct and in your character by being patient. Living a patient life. Being a man that doesn't give up, but one that runs the race with endurance. You're called to lead the younger men in these ways. And then we get to the second group that it talks about, which is the older women that are to disciple the younger women. And so as our passage shifts, uh, I want you to notice the use of the term, likewise, or uh, as I mentioned before, in the same way. And so it's not saying that the older women don't have to do these things uh, character-wise that the men do, but it does give them some specific challenges and specific tasks. So they likewise, are to lead by example in their character and in their conduct. It says to be truthful. By the way, I understand that, that some of these, these terms that the Scripture uses uh, for these, I may not be going in the exact order they're written, okay? I understand that, so don't come after me later for it, all right? Uh, but the older women, you're called to be truthful, not to slander or to speak bad of others, not to sow discord, not to uh, gossip, but to speak the truth and to speak the truth in love. They're called to be truthful. They're called to be reverent in behavior. That the older, seasoned, believing women, your life and your behavior are marked by holiness. They're to teach. Specifically, it references how to love one's husband and children. So they're to be teachers of good things, to teach by example in a good life, and to teach by doctrinal instruction in the home. They're to be teachers of good things as opposed to things, teachers of things that are corrupt. And then you get to the idea of being uh, not addicted to much wine. I think that's an interesting inclusion in this. I don't know if you caught that or not. I think it's interesting that that's included here because you notice it doesn't say that under the older men. Why? Well, I think it's twofold, all right? I think the first reason is because it already says, and we've already mentioned it, that it says in the same way. And so some of these things are really geared towards both. But I think it's interesting uh, uh, for this reason. Uh, it says not addicted to much wine is also a characteristic of an elder. I don't know if you caught that. If you go back to chapter 1, if you go to any place in the New Testament where it gives qualifications of elders, it says this exact thing. Not a slave to much Wine, not addicted to much wine. And so here's what we have. We have elders that are called to not be addicted to much wine, and we have the men of the church that are to imitate the elders of the church. 
And so it's implied that this command is for them as well. But what's interesting is the people of Crete viewed heavy drinking as a virtue. And so that's why this is mentioned so much. It was mentioned, they believed it was a virtue. It was like, it was something to be praised and to be honored if you would just go out and get wasted all the time. Like, what? To some degree, it sounds familiar. So it specifically mentions that. I would also suggest this. The idea of being not addicted to much wine carries an element of self-control with it. It carries an element of self-control. And not just that, um, it's referring to the moderation in the use of alcohol, but also to a measured character. And so in telling her to not become addicted to too much wine, it's promoting her use of self-control. Now, before I shift to the section dealing with younger women, let me say this. Older, more seasoned brothers and sisters in Christ, which is many of you in the room. One thing that the younger generations can spot in people from a mile away is authenticity and fakeness. You're called to lead in your character and conduct the younger people, the younger believers, the younger generations. They can spot authenticity and fakeness. And so as scripture tells you to teach them and to be active in their discipleship, I want to encourage you to be genuine and to be authentic. If you're not, they'll know. Trust me, I work with them all the time. They'll know if I'm being authentic in what I'm saying. Matter of fact, they may even call me out for it, which biblically I'm thankful for. On a personal level, it hurts. But biblically, I'm thankful for it, right? And so here we go. We shift to this next section. It talks about the younger folks. The younger women are to learn from the older women. They're to observe their character. They're to observe their conduct. It says to love your husband. And guess what? It's the only time in the Bible where a woman is encouraged to love her husband. Isn't that interesting? Because over and over and over when it talks about Husbands and wives, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives. This is the only time in Scripture where it mentions the woman loving her husband, which is just, just kind of an interesting little tidbit, right? And so, uh, but what's important about this is that it says the way that a couple loves each other will model for the children the way they should love their future spouses. And so we don't so much fall in love as we learn to love. Something we learn how to do. So younger women should be learning from our older women how to love your husband and then also how to love your children. It doesn't mean give them what they want all the time. Sorry, children in the room. I fight that battle with my children all the time. Always wanting something. It doesn't mean we give them what they want. What it means is that in the time that you have with them, you show them and you teach them how to love Jesus. That's what loving them looks like. You to observe, younger women, observe the, the older women showing and exhibiting self-control. Observe them as they use good judgment and decision-making. Live a pure life. Their, their conduct should be striving for holiness, living a moral life that is above reproach. And then I'm going to get to one that might get me in trouble, and so uh, we'll see how this goes. Um, we're to observe them taking care of their home. All right. Uh, for many... Uh, before anyone gets up in arms over the term homemaker in this passage, and everyone starts to think that I believe women should only be in the house, and that's it. That's not what I'm saying, so I want you to hear me out on this, okay? 
Proverbs 31, as we all know, speaks of a godly woman. But what it does do is it teaches us that a diligent homemaker is oftentimes involved in a wide range of activities and interests. Doesn't always look the same. She's not lazy, she's not a busybody, but she doesn't get distracted by things that are of less importance. All right? Working at home doesn't prohibit working outside the home, but what it does indicate is that Paul expects the wives to carry a primary responsibility for the day-to-day care of the home and the children. It's not saying you can never work outside the home, but there is an element here that he's saying that the primary responsibility of that belongs to the wife. And that is to show kindness to others, to be kind and to be gentle like Jesus was. As a matter of fact, one of the, only, the only place in uh, the Gospels where Jesus describes himself, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. It's interesting that those are his choices of words. And we're called to model that. And then it says to be submissive to their own husbands. Younger women, observe the older women being submissive to their own husbands. This one could get me in trouble too, I'm well aware of that, all right? Uh, Submission means to yield in one's will to the leadership and direction of another. See, there's no inferiority in submissiveness. But I also want to point out that in the passage it says to submit to your own husband. It doesn't say to submit to any man because they're a man. It's not what it says. It says to your own husband. At the fall in Genesis 3.16, part of the consequence for sin was that a woman's desire will be for her husband, and he will rule over her. In other words, there's going to be issues over authority within the home and over submissiveness. There's going to be a clashing and a butting of head at times between husband and wife as part of the consequences of sin present in Genesis chapter 3. And let's remember, when it talks about being submissive, it's not talking about being submissive like a slave, but a loving subordination. One that helps to prevent disorder and confusion. Now, husbands, I want to speak to you on this one, all right? Guess what? You can make this easier for your wife. Did you know that? You know how you make this easier for your wife? By living with the character and conduct that's described in this passage. You can make it easier for your wife to submit to you when you're seeking the Lord, when you're leading by example, when you're showing self-control, when you're making sound choices, when you're being steady in your faith, when you're loving others well, and when you're being patient as you run the race. That's the kind of man a wife is called to submit to. So men, you can make this way easier by fulfilling your description that's given to us in this passage of what we're called to do. Christ is the head of the church. And as such, he protects, he saves it, he supplies it with all good, he delivers it from evil. And so the husband is to love as Christ loved the church, to keep her from injury, to provide comfortably according to his ability. So just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands. It's quite a long list that the younger women are to observe, but it's all important. And then we get to the younger men. The younger men need strong, healthy role models provided by older men. Uh, I learned this the hard way, probably more than any other time in my life whenever I taught in public school. 
Because when I taught in public school, I taught in, um, in Ferguson, and I was the only male teacher in my entire building in the fifth and sixth grade is what I taught. I was the only male teacher in the building, no other elementary male teachers. The PE teacher wasn't a male, the art teacher, music, nobody. It was just me. The only other male interaction in the building was our custodial staff. That was it. And uh, I learned a lot over the seven years I was there about how many of those kids actually had father figures that were good role models. And so my goal, even if they couldn't do math worth a lick, my goal was character-wise they walked out of my classroom better than when they came in. Because I understood that there was a missing element there. There was a missing role model in many of those young men's lives. And that's what he's addressing here. Younger men, you need to observe the character and you need to observe the conduct of the older men. It says to be self-controlled. The self-controlled man actively engages the battle for the mind. Knowing that he's got to control and discipline his thought life in order to win the battles of the Christian life. We're called to observe the self-control of seasoned believers. We're called to observe their good example. Young men should be on the lookout for godly men that they can emulate. Men they can pattern their life after, right? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're called to live lives that are worth imitating. On the flip side, older men should seek to be men worth having somebody model their life after. See, being a model of good works involves serving others, both inside and outside of the church. Being a model of good works includes a God-glorifying attitude while serving others. Not one that takes credit, but one that gives it to God in all things. We're to look for those that can be a good example. It says to be sound in doctrine. As you all know, you are, whether you're looking at the young people of today's age or you're thinking back to the time when you considered yourself young, uh, whatever that would be, there's always things that are trying to pull us astray. There's always things trying to pull us astray. And so we have to be teachers of sound doctrine. You have to look for people that do that in order to not follow the false doctrine. See, a life of moral integrity uh, has to accompany the teaching ministry. If you read in that verse, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. They go hand in hand. Content and character go together. they got to complement each other. So, young men, look for somebody that's going to lead you by example in sound doctrine and teach that to you. And then it says to be sound in our speech. Everybody's got a role. Here's a couple of those thoughts for you. The first is that seasoned followers of Jesus need to be willing teachers. And I'm not saying that you need to be willing uh, to put your name outside of a Sunday school room and say, this is my class. But you're called to teach by the way that you live your life. And those of you that are parents and have children, you fully understand the fact that your children watch every move that you make. For better or for worse. Because they're going to pick up the good things that you do, but they're also going to pick up the bad things that you do. And so you're called to teach. We're called to teach, whether it's up front or in a classroom, or whether it's simply by the way that we live our life, we're called to teach. Younger followers 
need to be teachable, willing learners. That may be even harder, young folks. Guess what? You don't know everything. I hope that's not a newsflash to you. You don't. You need people that you can be willing to learn from. And that starts with some attitude. See, this calls for younger people to be willing to be teachable. See, in our world, we can't allow social media, TV, and other outside influences to be the teachers that our young people follow. It starts with parents, and it spreads to the seasoned believers in the church. And young folks need to be teachable and need to understand the right places to seek out that teaching. See, willing teachers and willing learners are absolutely vital to a healthy, doctrinally sound church. So, I'm, I'm getting close, y'all. I know you're waiting for me to finish. I'm getting close, I promise. Why is discipleship so important? Well, the book of Titus was written to combat false teaching. And first, he says, well, we need to put elders in place. And then it says, but when we have elders in place, we also need the church to look and live this way. And so realistically, here's what it is. Why is it so important? It helps combat false worldly teaching. It helps combat false worldly teaching. Yes, there are churches that have false teachers that don't teach sound doctrine. But when we grow up learning sound doctrine, we're better able to identify the false teachers. You can't identify them if you've never heard the right thing. Then you just assume they are right. And so it helps us combat that whenever we disciple one another, whenever we teach each other soundly. We also live in a world that pushes sinful worldly agendas. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And we need to be able to identify those and combat those, whether it's this whole abortion or choice thing, whether it's LGBTQ issues, whether it's the teaching of living how you wish because God loves you. Whatever it is, it's all around us. And we have to actively engage in discipleship in order to combat those false worldly teachings. See, the false teaching the world presents is thrown in our faces seven days a week, right? Can you imagine only being in the word one? The messages are going to overwhelm because you're going to hear them 24-7. If we only hear sound doctrine, we're only in the word of God, we're only being taught that one day a week, we're in trouble. It needs to be in our homes, it needs to be in our friend groups, it needs to be everywhere that we go. And so it helps combat those things, but what it also does is creates growth in believers. So the ones leading by example grow as they lead, and the ones that are observing and imitating are learning as they watch. So it creates growth in believers. See, I started telling you some stories about the way things worked and didn't work with sports intentionally, right? When people don't do their job, when people don't take their job seriously, we aren't successful as a church. And the term successful doesn't mean we have a large number of people. The term successful simply means people are drawing closer to Christ. We need everybody doing their job. And so I want you to consider a couple things as we close today. All right. And so, uh, Dave, if you can hear me, you can get ready to come up. All right. Uh, as we get ready to close. Hey, there he is. 
on cue, right? All I had to do is say his name, and he comes. It's beautiful. Um, so I want you to consider a couple of things as we close today. Number one, are you living a life worth imitating? If seasoned Christians are to lead by example in their character and conduct, we need to ask the Lord to search our hearts and reveal if our character and our conduct are worth imitating. The second thing I want to encourage you with, for the younger believers, are you being teachable? Are you putting up all these walls to act like you know everything? Are you willing to be taught? And are you seeking to imitate the life of another more seasoned believer? If not, you need to find one. See, discipleship is a team sport. Every one of us have a role. So are you and I actively living out that role? If not, we need to take some action. Seek out someone that can disciple you. Seasoned Christians, be willing to disciple the younger ones. We have not done a good job in our church of mixing generations together in anything but a worship service. And that needs to change for the church to grow and for our walks with Jesus to grow. Seek out someone. Seasoned Christians, be willing to disciple the other ones, the younger ones. It's what we're called to. And it's one necessary thing we must do to protect the church, to honor God and his word, and to further his kingdom. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us exactly what we need when we need. God, I pray that as we look at just this passage of what the church should look like, how we're called to interact with one another, how we're called to, to live lives of godliness and holiness, God, that we take these things to heart, that we understand, God, that we're not here to just sit and to judge one another, God, but we're called to teach and to love one another. God, I pray that even as we seek to move forward as a church, God, as we seek to honor you, to love you, to be faithful to your word and to the truth that it teaches, God. That we take a look at this passage and don't overlook it as this is another thing I have to do, but it's the way that I'm called to live. God, help us to see that today. 